Hey everyone, you are watching Multipolarista. This is the new media outlet that I launched and I'm very happy to, for the first stream that I've done under this name, to have a good friend of the show, uh, amazing journalist, a friend I very much admire, Rania Kalek. Rania, how are you doing? I'm good, thanks, Ben. I'm so happy to be on with you. How are you? I've been great. I've been great, you know, working a lot, getting this off the ground. But for those who don't know it yet, you know, Moderate Rebels, the show that I used to do, has ended. But in that, in the place of Moderate Rebels, I'm continuing to do these podcasts at least once a week. This is actually the second this week. And for this episode, I really wanted to have Rania on because Rania just took multiple trips that I, I mean, each trip deserves its own episode. So we're going to try to fit them both in today. But Rania with the team at Breakthrough News, an amazing journalistic team, including Eugene Perrier, Will Whiteman and others, they just took a trip to Ethiopia and Eritrea. And there's so much to talk about there. These are countries that are targeted now by U.S. sanctions. These are countries that have been resisting a war in which foreign meddling has played an important role in, in, in the war that they've been waging against this group, the TPLF, the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front, which, you know, there's a lot of evidence suggesting that the TPLF has been supported by the United States and European powers. We're going to talk about that in a second. But Rania also just got back a few days ago from Cuba, a country that has been targeted by Washington for decades, ever since the 1959 revolution. Cuba has been targeted for regime change, coup attempts, a failed invasion with Bay of Pigs. And then for over 60 years now, Cuba has been under this suffocating economic blockade that is illegal every single year for 29 years. The entire international community, the actual international community, <laughs> which by the way, doesn't just mean all the white countries, the, the actual international community every year votes to condemn the U.S. blockade on Cuba. Well, Rania just took a trip there. And as, as we talk about it, I'm going to show photos of her trip that she tweeted out. So Rania, let, let's start with Cuba. And then I want to talk about Ethiopia and Eritrea as well. But because it's more fresh in your mind, can you talk about your trip to Cuba and how your experience was there? Yeah, I felt really like privileged to be able to go to Cuba um, because since Trump took office, uh, he basically undid all of the normalization efforts of the Obama administration. And so now Americans can't visit Cuba as tourists anymore. You have to go under like a certain um, condition, like there's like journalism, there's humanitarian aid. And there's like doing religious work, of course, because, you know, the U.S. is so obsessed with like proselytizing right wing Christianity across Latin America. Um, so we went, you know, we got a journalist visas. We've been trying to go on this trip for quite some time, in fact, but the pandemic uh, kind of put it on hold because Cuba took COVID very seriously and wasn't like allowing people to visit for a while. So I felt really lucky to get to go. I've never been to Cuba, of course, as like a leftist. It's always been a place I wanted to go. And it was a little bit of a contradictory feeling on a lot of levels because it's an amazing country with a really incredible and inspiring system that is, I would say, so much more democratic than the system that we have in the U.S., which I know is contrary to the way that the media portrays Cuba as like some sort of dictatorship and police state. It wasn't a police state or dictatorship feeling there at all. And I've been in police states and dictatorships and I know what that's like. 
Um, yeah, this was like a, the United States, you mean? <laughs> yeah. I mean, if we're talking about police states, there's nothing that compares to the U.S. on like five different levels. You know, there I think I saw one cop car while I was there, like drive by like a traffic cop car. And that's it. Uh, we walked around with a camera and no handlers all around Havana. And no one once asked us for our credentials. Um, we just went around talking to people on camera and we weren't stopped and asked for our credentials. Uh, and people were very open about their political opinions on camera. Nobody was scared to talk. Uh, people were very willing to be critical of the government, in fact, um, just not in the way maybe the American government wants. The American wants capitalist opposition in Cuba. What you have in Cuba is some frustration with the situation there, but much of the criticism is actually from like a left perspective. Uh, and maybe like a different, you know, like a different view of how maybe the government should be handling this difficulty or that challenge. Um, but it was a really open place, a really warm culture, a really inviting place. The contradiction, of course, was, and I wouldn't call it a contradiction, more of like the feeling there was, it was really sad because people are dealing with a lot of difficulties because of the blockade. And of course, Cuba has been under a blockade, as you mentioned, for 60 years. And that's in combination with all kinds of U.S. schemes to undermine the socialist revolution in that country, you know, whether it's, assass you know, hundreds of assassination attempts, att you know, attempted invasions, actual terrorism sponsored by the United States, and so many other ways the U.S. has tried to undermine the Cuban government through, you know, various uh, NGOs and NGO money and using the internet and on and on and on and on. But because under Trump, he came in and he really, his administration attacked Cuba's main sources of income through tour, you know, the tourism industry is a main source of income that was, a, that was attacked by Trump. I mean, Trump added 243 new sanctions against Cuba. And that is on top of the already very crippling U.S. blockade that makes the economic situation in that country difficult. Uh, this made it even worse. And this happened during a pandemic. So in the middle of a pandemic, you have Cuba being cut off from tourism, both because of the pandemic and because of these new sanctions, as well as remittances. You know, Trump made it, I think he limited the amount of remittances that people in the U.S. can send back to their families in Cuba. And, you know, people all over the developing world depend on remittances from their families in the global north who have immigrated. And that's not just Cuba. I mean, that's the case for Lebanon. That's the case for uh, basically all, all over Africa, all over the Middle East, all over Latin America. So that's a huge source of income that people depend on that they were cut off from because of Trump. And then there's the medical brigades. Cuba has this incredible medical system that's socialist. Medical care is free. And it's all revolves around uh, preventative care in a really holistic way where like you have layers of medical care from your local neighborhood doctor whose house you can go to for easy visits, who, who goes and actually checks on disabled and elderly people in the neighborhood to make sure their vitals are good, their blood pressure is good, they're getting what they need, to neighborhood clinics, uh, to bigger hospitals that they'll send you to if the neighborhood clinic can't help you, and then special various specialties they'll send you to if you like need real like serious care uh, for a really serious problem. And so their, their, their medical system inside the country is incredible because it exists across the country, even in the countryside, which was a huge accomplishment of the revolution in Cuba. But more than that, Cuba has these international medical brigades that they send, you know, they send their doctors to provide 
med free, basically free medical care to areas around the world, particularly the developing world. And they'll serve, you know, in very poor areas of like Brazil and Venezuela and Bolivia and various countries in Africa in order to provide care to people who otherwise don't have access to medical care. Maybe there's no clinic in their town, right? And so Trump, when he took office, he had, you know, John Bolton and Marco Rubio in charge of these policies to try to strangle these leftist Latin American governments. They basically pressured uh, various governments to uh, kick out, to deport the Cuban doctors. And that's what happened with Bolsonaro in Brazil. One of the first things he did was he deported the medical brigades, essentially you know, taking away access to medical care for his own people, but also governments like Brazil that have money, what they would do is they would pay a stipend to the doctors, as well as a portion of that money would go to the Cuban government. So that was the purpose of kicking out those medical brigades. And then as soon as there was the coup in Bolivia, you remember when Hanin Añez took over, one of the first things that she did at the behest of the U.S. government, and I'm sure, you know, her own volition because she's a fascist, was to kick out the Cuban doctors in Brazil, accusing them of being spies. And Sorry to cut you off, Ronnie, really quickly, but also what's funny, I mean, it's really sad, but what's sadistically funny in Brazil is that after Bolsonaro kicked out all of those Cuban doctors during the pandemic, there were so many rural areas in Brazil without Cuban doctors, so they desperately requested them to send back the doctors that he had expelled. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you can the, the, like this is U.S. government policy. Mike Pompeo applauded that, by the way, applauded the he was like applauded Bolivia and Brazil for kicking out the Cuban doctors, because what the U.S. does is it has Cuba on the human trafficking list because they claim that these doctors, these Cuban doctors are slaves that the Cuban government is forcing to work around the world for free so that the Cuban government can make their money from off of the doctor's free labor, which isn't even true. The doctors actually make more money abroad than they do inside Cuba. Um, so it was, you know, it, it's just such a ridiculous accusation. Uh, but actually part of the reason for that accusation is also to pressure governments that use this medical care to push out those doctors because it kind of like, it kind of subjects them to potential punishment as well for participating in so-called human trafficking. Um, but anyways, it's, you know, that's another huge source of income that's been taken away from the Cubans. And this is all in the middle of a pandemic that the Cubans took very seriously. Uh, and they took it so seriously. You know, Cuba has the other amazing thing I got to see in Cuba is I got to visit the vaccine production facilities. I got to speak to the heads of the Cuban vaccine task force, as well as the head of the Finley Institute in Cuba that was responsible for developing the Sobonera vaccine. I think I'm saying that right. I always say that word wrong, but I think I said it right, which means sovereignty, actually, which I think is really cool. Um, and this is one of Cuba's most effective vaccines. Cuba managed to develop five vaccines against COVID. I think three of them have like 90% or higher uh, efficacy rate. So they're like as good as Pfizer and Moderna. And the reason Cuba was able to do this, yep, there's the photo of me and Vincente, Dr. Vincente at the Finley Institute. And I look forward to that interview coming out. But, you know, one of the most amazing things is that under this blockade, Cuba managed to develop like this world-renowned biomedical industry. Um, they are one of the leaders in biomedical technology, and that includes vaccines. So 
despite the blockade, and this is something that Cuba invested in under Fidel Castro starting in the 80s for the purposes of like sovereignty and also trying to do something good in the world. Um, and, you know, Fidel Castro says that like science is what makes us like, you know, a free nation, basically. Um, and like education makes us a free nation. So uh, they, they have these like, despite the blockade, despite the delays in receiving equipment, they are leaders in this. And so they were able to develop these vaccines, but the vaccines were somewhat delayed in production for months because the blockade delays everything. Because, you know, when you have a country under sanctions as strict and severe as Cuba, I forgot to uh, remind people that under Trump, Cuba was also placed on the state sponsor of terrorism list. So when all of these labels are attached to you, even if they're unilateral by the U.S. government, I'm sure people who follow your content, Ben, are aware of this. But when the U.S. does this to a country, it basically makes financial institutions that are mostly based in the West and banks and other companies and businesses very reluctant to, to sell to these countries or do business with these countries because they'll face such huge financial penalties if they accidentally violate this like crazy maze of U.S. sanctions from the Treasury Department, which requires like a team of lawyers to make sure you don't violate them. So as a result, everything is delayed. Like a lot of companies that sell medical equipment will, from Europe, for example, will do like will have to do like a really meticulous audit before they sell to Cuba to make sure they're not violating sanctions. So there was like a three month delay in the vaccine development process in Cuba. And people didn't have to die, but died from covid as a result, because had they had that vaccine, they even if they had gotten COVID would have been able to stay out of the hospital, because as we know, these vaccines uh, prevent hospitalization like almost like ninety nine point nine percent of the time. So it's just really vicious what the U.S. has done to Cuba. But it's also incredibly inspiring to see how I think one of the reasons they've survived and a lot of Cubans will say this is because they have a socialist system that places people over profit, make sure people don't starve, make sure people have access to preventative medical care. One thing I'll add uh, before you maybe have another question is, you know, I visited pharmacies and what I was told in pharmacies, a lot of the shelves are empty. And the reason for that is because of the new restrictions under Trump. And by the way, Biden added even more sanctions after campaigning on reversing Trump's restrictions on Cuba, he actually added even more sanctions after the like AstroTurf, mostly AstroTurf July 11th protests that happened last year um, that were heavily encouraged by the US and were actually a result of the shortages that were making people really frustrated. But at the pharmacies, I, you know, the, the pharmacist told me one after another is that they have, they used to like before Trump came to office, they would get 100% of the medical of the medicines that they ordered. But since Trump instituted those 243 sanctions, they're only about to fill 27% of the orders they need. So you can imagine what that means. That means people don't have access to like basic medicines like like Tylenol and Motrin. So like even just a basic over-the-counter anti-inflammatory is not available at most Cuban pharmacies. And you know, we went to Cuba uh, for this journalistic reporting trip, the way we got there was we tagged along with, as a part of the reporting that we're doing, we tagged along with a a bunch of activist groups, the people, uh, or the People's Forum, Code Pink, and another group whose name I'm blanking on. Um, I'm sorry about that, but they're like a Cuban American group based in Miami who's against the blockade, and I'm sorry to them for 
blanking on their name. But these groups organized a humanitarian aid mission where they basically raised money to get a charter plane, fill it with 15,000 pounds of um, milk powder for baby formula to take to Cuba to help their pediatric wards get through the next couple months because they don't have baby formula in Cuba right now because of the blockade. And that's how we came in. And it was just really devastating that this country that is has has accomplished so much and has this incredible, you know, socialist model that really, per, you know, presents a model for, I think, a lot of the region um, is being strangled by the U.S. government. And of course, that's why they're being strangled. They're being strangled so that their socialist model fails. Absolutely. And there's so much to say there. I mean, your analysis was excellent. I mean, thanks for sharing that. Uh, the first thing I'll say is just that here I have this photo up of the activists from Code Pink and other groups delivering the powdered milk that they can't deliver because of the sanctions. And here are some other photos. Oh, another Puentes thing de Amor. Sorry. Puentes de Amor is the name of the group. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, which means bri bridges of love. And another thing I wanted to point out is with, that Code Pink very much deserves credit for is because of the illegal, again, we need to stress, this illegal blockade imposed by the United States for over 60 years now, there's also been a shortage of syringes mm -hmm. that they need for, obviously, vaccination. And and Code Pink, I know, organized a campaign. Here's an article that was actually in, in Telesur, and it's Cuba thanks the is grateful for the syringes that were sent by the people of the United States. And here you can see Medea Benjamin and the team from Code Pink sending syringes to Cuba. So, I mean, it's amazing to see the solidarity from groups like Code Pink and other anti-war activists, anti-imperialists in the United States. Um, something that you mentioned I think is so important is the fact that this small country, Cuba, that has been blockaded illegally for 60 years. And again, when we're talking about Cuba, we have to compare it to its other neighbors, not to rich imperialist countries, because we often hear apples and oranges being compared, mm -hmm. right? We hear yeah. com Cuba compared to Florida, even though <laughs> Florida is, you know, in the in the United States, the richest country on earth that made got its wealth through imperial plunder and genocide of Native Americans and slavery. Cuba is a country that has only been able to develop through a process of socialism under siege. So we mm -hmm. have to compare Cuba not to the United States, but compare it to the Dominican Republic and compare Cuba and to Haiti, countries that, you know, not because of the faults of their peoples who have tried to struggle, but who countries that have horrible rates of poverty and violence and infant mortality. Meanwhile, in Cuba, the life, the, the standard of living, uh, not the standard of living, excuse me, the life expectancy is higher than the United States. And the infant mortality rate in Cuba is lower than in the United States. Those are according to World Bank statistics. Mm -hmm. So given all of that, I mean, it's incredible. And then you mentioned the fact that Cuba, this small country under a blockade, has been able to create not one, but multiple, five different COVID vaccines. Here in Nicaragua, a lot of people have been vaccinated with the Abdallah and the and Soberana, the, which is the sovereign vaccine, Soberana but also the Abdallah, and I know, in, including not just adults, but children in mm -hmm. Nicaragua, young people and children have been vaccinated with these Cuban vaccines. And, and of course, the World Health Organization hasn't approved it because the World Health Organization, unfortunately, is dominated by a lot of these Western governments. But Cuba and China and Russia have created these extremely effective vaccines. 
And here in Nicaragua, you have all of them. You have the Cuban, the Russian, and the Chinese vaccines. I know people who have gotten all these vaccines. But what's incredible is that China is the largest country in terms of population on the planet, which has now the largest economy. By the way, it surpassed the United States, according to McKinsey. Russia is another massive country. So those are two superpowers. It's not surprising to hear that they both have very good, effective vaccines. But Cuba is a small island nation under blockade and yeah. has five. So, I mean, I, I just wanted to say how incredible it was. I mean, you already spoke a bit about that. Can you also talk about your experience seeing the health program? Because you, you talked about, um, for instance, you visited this school where, they, where Cuba trains doctors and not only trains Cuban doctors. And of course, Cuba exports doctors around the world. Cuba has sent thousands and thousands of doctors to, to over 100 countries. But also, you, you discussed in your tweet, which I'll get, get up in a second, you talked about how Cuba trains doctors in other countries, including people in the United States who, who are from poor working class communities, like in the Bronx and other parts of the United States, and they're trained to be doctors, and then they go back to their country. Yeah, this was really incredible. So we visited the, <coughs> excuse me, the Latin American Medical School, where people from 92 countries go to medical school for free, um, including obviously Cubans. But uh, what was really incredible about this is most of these people that go to the school from other countries are from like developing countries. And the idea is they're trained in Cuba so they can take what they learn back to their home countries and they go for free. So they're not going to be saddled by debt and they can like go serve in, in, in these underprivileged areas. But there's also doctors who come from the U.S. And that's what this photo is. These are a few of the doctors that we interviewed or a few of the medical students that we interviewed. Uh, one of them was from the Bronx, uh, but grew up in Ghana. Another one was from Chicago. Another one was from Philly. Another from Missouri. Um, and they, you know, it was really amazing. They all came to medical school in Cuba because they were really inspired by Cuba's system, for one, because it's so focused on preventative care, which is like the opposite of what we do in the U.S. In the U.S., it's all about you wait till you get sick to go to the doctor and then it costs a lot of money. So sometimes you even wait longer so that you don't have to like go bankrupt in case you're really sick. So you wait almost till it's an emergency because in the U S we punish people with huge medical bills for getting sick. Um, in fact, I'll just say this, you know, my health insurance premium, uh, just went up and I was like, I had to ask, I was like, why did my premium go up? I like emailed my health insurance. It's actually like a, it's American provider, but it's an international health insurance. I don't live in the U S so I emailed them and I'm like, why did my premium go up? And they got back to me. They were like, because you've entered a new age bracket because I'm now 35. So that's, they also punish you in the U S for like getting older. Like it's, it's so insane. It's so insane. And like, so these people were inspired to go to Cuba because they don't have a for-profit medical system and they were really uh, attracted to it by the way their medical system is run. And then also they'll come out debt-free so they can actually like you know, not have to go into like a field necessarily or specialty in, in medic medicine that makes so much money to pay off these exorbitant medical feel or medical bill or I'm sorry, um, medical debt, medical school debt, but they can go back to their communities and serve, serve in like underprivileged areas that they are from themselves without having to worry about making a ton of money. And so that was really cool too. I'll also mention you know, we also visited one of these uh, like clinics in the, these public clinics in the outs in the outskirts of Havana, 
which is like a very kind of work. I mean, everywhere in Cuba is kind of a working class area, but there's a few areas that look like a little poorer and, te- you know, and so we went to an area that looked, you know, a little, a little poorer than maybe the center of Havana. Um, and they have access to this public clinic. There's like all the machines they need. Of course, there's some shortages, a lot of shortages because of the blockade, which people told us about, but the doctors there, almost all of them had served in, in the international medical brigades at some point they'd been to like Venezuela um, or Bolivia, but they, I mean, they had the coolest system. It was like this layered system where, like I mentioned, if in your neighborhood, you have a doctor whose house you can go to, you like can go to their home. They have like an area in their home in the neighborhood where you can go. And if you have any ailments, go just have a checkup, whatever. And if they can't help you, they'll send you to the clinic, which isn't too far away, the neighborhood clinic, which looks a lot like an urgent care kind of sort of place, right? Like if to compare it to the US. And if they can't help you there, then you go to the hospital. And if they can't help you there, then they send you to like whatever specialty you need to go to. And I thought this was so cool because it was all so focused on prevention, which is actually cheaper. It's cheaper to provide preventative care because you end up preventing all the horrible emergency and chronic conditions that we have in the U.S. that, you know, cause so much medical debt and early death for people in America. And that's why, despite the blockade and the medicine shortages that Cuba's had to deal with for its entire existence for many, in many ways, you have like a mortality in the rate in the U.S. You have like, you know, people are living in Cuba almost to, to the same age that they are in the U.S., which is the richest country in the world. It's because of this preventative holistic model they have. And I'll add one more thing related to the vaccines that I thought was really interesting because, you know, to get to Cuba, we first went to Miami. We flew from Miami. So we spent a day in Florida, in Miami, which is like right-wing Cuba. (laughs) Um, That's where a lot of like the right-wing Cuban exile community is based, as well as the right-wing Venezuelan community. Not all of them. I know there's people there who don't agree with that, but the loudest people who really dominate the politics of that city are very right-wing, very anti-socialist, anti-Cuban revolution. And just the juxtaposition between the attitude and the culture that we saw in Miami versus Havana was so different. In these places, it's an hour flight. Like, it's not far. They're 90 miles apart, right? And there was no one wearing masks anywhere even inside in Florida, in, in Miami. And we know Florida doesn't have a high vaccination rate. There's a very, very anti-vaccine, anti-public health attitude. In Cuba, without a vaccine mandate of any sort, they have managed to vaccinate 90% of their population, including children two and up, because the Sobonera vaccine was actually created almost geared towards children in particular. So, and it's very safe for children. And so 90%, like how did Cuba reach 90% vaccination rate? And they wear masks everywhere in Cuba. And I think I'm so American. I was like, even I was a little like, this is too much mask wearing because I'm like so American. (laughs) And it's just like, we don't have to wear them almost anywhere in America that I've gotten used to that. But in Cuba, they take it really seriously because for them, like, I think almost like between 8,000 to 9,000 people died from COVID in Cuba in the last two years. And for them, that number is way too high. Like that number is so high. Like, and and people who didn't even feel it, like people who just know that people died of COVID in Cuba were too, were so bothered by that. There's a sense of collective responsibility there 
that even if someone who isn't your family member, who's a stranger is dying from a virus and you can do something to prevent the spread of it, people feel very strongly about protecting each other. And they also, because the Cuban medical system is so superior to so many medical systems around the world, but because they have a history of going to the doctor, of knowing their doctor, of being taken care of by their doctor, of not being put into debt by their doctor, there's a high level of trust in public health in Cuba. So that's why it wasn't necessary to have a vaccine mandate to force people to get vaccinated because people did it willingly after, you know, an educational campaign by the government that they trust. Even people who are anti-revolution in Cuba have a certain kind of faith in the public health care system because it treats them well. Unlike the U.S., where I think one of the biggest obstacles to people getting vaccinated is one, nothing in the U.S. is free. So I think there's a lot of people who are like, why the hell is this free? Something must be wrong with it. So I think that actually is, has maybe played somewhat of a role in vaccine hesitancy in the U.S., but also on a bigger, like on another big scale kind of level, in the U.S., we have a public health system that we can't, we feel like we can't trust because it, it, it like terrorizes us financially. It costs so much money and we've had so little interaction with doctors or we've had like 12 different doctors or more throughout our life because you don't go to the same doctor that you went to as a kid, like until, like until you're older, you don't have that sort of relationship with medical care in the U.S. Everything is about, you know, the first thing you do is give them your ID and your insurance card and can you afford it? And so I think that that is such a huge like difference to the point of like we, you know, that we have a lot to learn from Cuba. And I'll even, you know, I'll end with this on this topic is that that picture you showed with uh, Dr. Vincente Bencomo of the Finley Institute who helped uh, develop the uh, Sobonera vaccine. I actually asked him to comment um, in an interview that will be coming out in the coming weeks. Uh, I asked him to comment on the vaccine hesitancy and the anti-vax sentiment that we're seeing in a lot of the global north and some in the global south, but I think it's like the level of the, in the global north is a lot higher um, from what I, I can tell. But, and I asked him specifically about the U.S. You know, there's people in the U.S. who, you know, consider themselves on the left and they rightly don't trust big pharma because big pharma has been very abusive. Everything's about profit. And so the vaccines we have in the U.S. are Moderna and Pfizer, which come from big pharma. Um, and so there is this hesitancy or has been this hesitancy on the left to not trust these vaccines in particular because of who's making them. So I asked him to comment on that because a lot of, you know, I think that a lot of the people on the left in the U.S. would be interested to hear from a Cuban vaccine developer who isn't in the pockets of big pharma. And his response was really interesting. He was like, look, obviously, I think the Cuban vaccines are better because, you know, we helped develop them. But as far as I've seen, these vaccines from Moderna and Pfizer are very effective and there's a cost you know, uh, a cost benefit analysis you do, COVID is way riskier than getting this vaccine, which can protect you from going to the hospital and dying. And it's a, it's like, no, it's a no brainer. You get this vaccine, you get, if that's the vaccine available to you, you absolutely get it. And then he went on to compare people who are anti-vax, especially in relation to this vaccine, which we know we have overwhelming evidence is very effective and is very safe. Um, probably one of the most tested vaccines in history because the amount of people who've taken it. And he said, you look, you look, look, you know, there's still people who believe the earth is flat today. 
Like you're always going to have those people. <laughs> he basically compared them to flat earthers, but you know, his, his thing was like, you know, please get vaccinated. And so I think that was really interesting to hear from a Cuban doctor, a Cuban vaccine producer and developer who obviously is not in the pocket of big pharma. If he was in the U S he would get Pfizer or Moderna or whatever was available to him. Yeah, I mean, this is the same thing that you hear from from scientists and medical professionals in every country targeted by the U.S. for regime change, including China, Vietnam, Cuba. I mean, uh, you can get on the list here in Nicaragua, uh, Venezuela. Like, the, there are doctors, by the way, and they're not in the pockets of, of big pharma, obviously. <laughs> and they're all saying the same thing. And you said something so important about the the public health system in Cuba being preventative. And I think this is one of the key reasons that the death toll is so astronomically high in the U.S. because of COVID. And we've seen people, including people on the left, which is really distressing, try to rationalize and downplay these deaths by saying, well, the maj a majority or many of the deaths, we don't know if it's a majority, but many of the deaths in, in the U.S. of people who had COVID had comorbidities, which is essentially, it's a kind of eugenicist argument yeah. saying that if you have high blood pressure, if you're obese, if you have diabetes, if you have other health issues, if you're old, you basically just deserve to die. Like, I mean, that's an insane argument, an extremely reactionary fascistic argument. You know, yeah. and we hear people saying that it's fascistic to demand public health measures, but actually it's fascistic to say that people who have bad health conditions in an unhealthy society with an unhealthy system that doesn't give them health care deserve to die. And yeah. the U.S. doesn't have a preventative healthcare system because it's more profitable, yes, for big pharma to not treat people beforehand, instead to treat them after the hand and to keep them unhealthy. And that's exactly. why I think nearly 900,000, over 875,000 people in the United States have died. We're nearing and that's one probably million. An under, that's probably an underestimate yes. too, right? Yeah. Yes. And the Biden administration, not only not doing anything, the Biden administration has now announced that as of February 2nd, hospitals don't even have to report COVID deaths, probably because they don't want to actually reach the 1 million you know, number. Because You know, Ben, it's I think that this everything you're saying speaks to the fact that, like I was saying how in Cuba, 8,000 deaths is, like one death is too many from COVID for them because they really care about human life. And 8,000 deaths is like that. I mean, they like feel traumatized by that. Whereas in the US, like 2,000 or 3,000 deaths in a day has just become background noise. It's normal. And it speaks to how much sickness and death in particular in the U.S. we've been conditioned to put up with, not just from COVID, but like people making these arguments about, oh, but what about the number of people who are dying from like this disease or this disease? Yeah. What about them? Why aren't we doing anything about that too? The argument shouldn't be, why are we care about COVID? Look how many people are dying of this. It should be, these are all preventable deaths. Like there are millions of preventable deaths in the US that we don't do anything about because we just don't care because we have a for-profit system. And I don't mean we as Americans, I mean the people in charge, the ruling class in the US does not care. So millions of people in the US needlessly die from all kinds of preventable diseases, not to speak to the unhealthy like lifestyles that we have in the U.S. because of capitalism, the unhealthy eating habits that we have in the U.S. because of capitalism, where trash, garbage, fast food is more is cheaper and more accessible 
than fresh groceries. People don't even have access to grocery stores. I mean, we have all these preventable deaths in the U.S. that we're seeing manifest in a higher COVID death rate for certain people in the country geographically that is completely linked to their income level because of capitalism. And that's the conversation that we should be having, not this weird like eugenicist crap where we're just going to say the 100 million Americans who suffer from comorbidities, and I don't even know if that number is accurate, it might be higher, but it's at least 100 million that suffer from serious comorbidities, that we should just be okay with them dying from COVID? No, I'm not okay with that. And if there's a way to prevent that, we should be doing it. And the Biden administration, for all those people who are out there talking about restrictions and lockdowns and authoritarianism, what lockdowns are you talking about? Like, what restrictions are you talking about? I don't even understand. Like, I look around this country. I travel a lot. I try. Last year, I went to so many countries, I lost count. Um, I went all across Europe. I got to go to Africa, to, to the Horn of Africa. I got to go to Cuba. I live in Lebanon. And, I, you know, these countries that even don't have that many restrictions, like when I tell Lebanon doesn't have that many restrictions, there's still a higher level of protection there than what you're getting in the U.S. from COVID, which under both of the last of both administrations of Trump and Biden has had a policy of just let it rip. And both administrations had a policy of vaccines can fix this because Biden just went along with the vaccine program that Trump actually initiated. And we know that vaccines alone can't fix this and nothing else was done to fix it because it was all about get back to work, get back to work, let it rip screw the working class. And that's it. That's it. And like, that's what we've decided to do in the US. So I really like, I don't know what it is people are talking about. I I've traveled into the US. It's the only country where when I travel here, like I'm not asked anything at customs about my health status, whether I had COVID, whatever. I mean, it wasn't even until recent months that they even started, you know, demanding or checking your vaccine card to enter the US and you don't even have to do it domestically. So I don't know what the hell people are talking about. And by the way, that card in the U.S. is a piece of paper. Yeah. And, and I've seen online people are like anti-vaxxers are selling people that card. You can just write your name on it. Like you, you can, can also just, get, just you can, you can also go just get write a, your vaccine doses on it. Like it's I could write in a like yeah. any like five doses. The idea that it's some to. authoritarian measure. It's a paper card that people that anti-vaxxers are selling because. They've like just stolen them from like CVS and then just like yeah. sold them and write people's name. I mean, it's, it's a cardboard but. flimsy card. Like it's just, I, I'm, it's so shocking to me. Like when I come to the U S and everyone's complaining, I'm like, what are you complaining about? Like what? I mean, the one thing that I will say that I know is really frustrating for a lot of people in America is the situation with schools, but that's like not the fault of teachers. That is the fault of a country that said, we don't give a shit. We don't care how much COVID spreads, let it rip. That's what ha what's happened. And it's caused a disaster in schools because there's staffing shortages, people who have it or maybe have been exposed, have to quarantine and on and on and on. That would not have to happen had our government done something to prevent the spread of this virus. But instead, they did like a weird lockdown for a couple of months that wasn't really a lockdown. So it still spread everywhere. And they didn't really offer people that much help. So they were forced to go to work anyway. And as a result, a lot of small businesses suffered, uh, which caused a lot of reactionary tendencies among small business owners who already have those tendencies anyways. But like, and obviously like, corporations took advantage and made a big, as big a profit as they could, which happens 
under capitalism all the time, especially if there's any sort of disaster. So that's not surprising. But overall, like it's as if nobody, like no one care. Everyone has it all the time, it seems like. And and now like the liberals and the Biden administration are trying because of the change in, in, in party power are trying to downplay it. It's not a big deal. We have to learn to live with it. Omicron is mild, even though we're still having like 2000 deaths a day. It's just complete insanity. And at the end of the day, what people, especially on the left, need to recognize is that what is neoliberalism? Neoliberalism is is attacking and weakening the state, right? It's attacking and weakening the state so that you can embolden, embolden private enterprise to make more money off of the state, to private, you know, take away welfare, take away anything, any measure of like good public, like public good that the state does. Well, to yeah, it's, it's attacking. It's attacking the good elements of the state that actually yeah. help people, while strengthening the repressive apparatus of the state yeah. on behalf of capital. That's exactly. what neoliberalism does. And and so that police, is what, which yeah. which act on behalf of capital. Police, the military, the repressive apparatus, the mass incarceration, the judicial system all get more funding exactly. because they're repressing poor people. But then anything that could help people like education and housing programs and jobs programs and especially healthcare, is all whittled away. We don't have money for that. Exactly. And that is what is, that has and that is what has happened with these arguments that are a lot of which are coming from like the right and increasingly, of course, from the center and from the Democrats, these arguments against state intervention and COVID are actually neoliberal arguments. It's an attack on the parts of the state that we actually need to like help with public health. All of that. So I just, I want to like, I can't, I, I don't know if that makes sense, but like that needs to be repeated over and over again. Cause I think I understand the tendency to feel like, everything's authoritarian and the state is always bad, but that's actually a very anarchist and libertarian argument. And that isn't actually the left argument. Like traditionally the left believes in a strong central state apparatus, particularly with, with, with respect to the welfare of the public. And th this is the moment, this isn't the war on terror. The war on COVID is not the war on terror. I've heard that, I've heard that, that comparison made. It's not the war on terror. Like the war on COVID is supposed to be a war again or an you know an attempt to intervene so that a virus doesn't spread and if we look at the countries that have successfully dealt with this virus they are leftist countries for the most part we're talking i mean not all of them there are some capitalist countries that did put in public health measures that maybe even also were a little too extreme in what they did but they did prevent a lot of deaths but the example of china i mean i think we can debate the specific policies what would work best in the us but in China, they're living way more normal lives than we are. And the example of Cuba, you know, the example of Vietnam has been able to handle, you know, keeping this virus uh, at bay and on and on and on. I mean, it's like, are all of these countries in the pockets of, of big pharma and of the capitalist ruling elites that are trying to like control our lives more? Like, I don't think so. Yeah, I think that's what's what's so important about the trip that you all just took to Cuba, because it really does show not only that another model for healthcare and for everything is possible, but it's even possible in a small, impoverished nation that is under a suffocating blockade and has been under a blockade for 60 years. If Cuba can do these things with the few resources it has under a blockade, then 
with with the help of socialism than any country can, right? So, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm really looking forward to your reporting. Here is a photo of an interview that you did talking about the the healthcare system. And I also briefly wanted because I still want to talk about Ethiopia and Eritrea, but I also briefly wanted to um, to well, here's here's another. I wanted to talk about the other interviews you did in Cuba briefly, but mm -hmm. this photo I think says so much really quickly about the philosophy of the Cuban healthcare system. This is a this is an image in the Latin American School of Medicine in Havana, and it says, for a more humane world, and you see the Castros, and behind them, this 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 pastiche, this, uh, this with all these photos, and th that, I mean, I think it really describes the philosophy of their health system for a more humane world. But really briefly, Rania, before we move to Ethiopia and Eritrea, I, I wonder if you can just briefly summarize I know. I mean, I'm looking. This is like a highlight. No, this was a highlight of my. This is like a highlight of my yeah. life. Sorry. This is I a photo of you interviewing <laughs> Che Guevara's daughter, uh, mm -hmm. Che Guevara's daughter, Aleda Guevara, and then you also interviewed Camila Guevara. So these are the well, children of Che Guevara. I didn't. I didn't get to interview his son. His son actually. I just got to meet his son. I just interviewed okay. his daughter, but I, I had to take a selfie. I was like, please don't judge me, but can I take a selfie with you? <laughs> Um, but no, Aleda Guevara was Che Guevara's daughter. One of Che Guevara's daughters was like amazing. So she's actually a physician. She's a doctor and she served abroad in the medical brigade. She served and in Angola. Sorry to cut you off, but, but Che was as well. Yes, exactly. Her father was a doctor and then she kind of like followed in those footsteps. She's a pediatric doctor. She obviously takes deals with children. Uh, she's kind of, she's sort of retired. She still consults for like the local pediatric hospital nearby, but now she, spends a lot of time and we were actually did that interview in the Che Guevara Center um, where she spends a lot of time. Um, they have like really cool like centers to Che Guevara and then they have a recent one that was like built and just opened I think a few months ago the Fidel Castro Center that was like a really incredible experience to go to but anyway she is a physician who served in the medical brigade she was in Angola she spent time in Venezuela and she told really cool anecdotes about her time in those countries and actually when she was talking about Angola she started crying um, and I talked to her about her father. I talked to her about why she became a doctor. And it was also just really cool. Cause like, I think Che Guevara plays, obviously he's like this monumental figure in, um, the minds of so many leftists around the world and not even just leftists. I actually, I think, and I think Ben, you can relate to this. Every developing country I've ever been to, regardless of the political orientation has photos celebrating Che Guevara and Fidel yeah. Castro in particular. Definitely. And it's because they stood up to the empire. They're, they're um, not only symbols of the left. I mean, they are symbols of the left, yeah. but they're also symbols specifically of anti-colonialism, which is exactly. why around the global South, even people who are not necessarily leftists admire them for being leaders, models of how they can successfully liberate their countries. I mean, national liberation isn't always socialist. It usually is socialist, but there are other forms of, national liberation struggles, you know, Hezbollah and Lebanon, the Iranian revolution, and even, you know, in all of these struggles, they look toward other anti-colonialist movements. And in Latin America, I mean, Che and Fidel are, are titans. <laughs> it was the most successful, like they were the most successful of the Cuba, the Cuban revolution is still going. Um, and they up against all odds, you know, and Che and Che, especially Che Guevara was, was such an internationalist figure. Obviously Fidel was too, but Che actually went and fought in the Congo and he went and fought in Bolivia where he ultimately was killed with the, with the help of the CIA. Um, so, you know, people have so, so much respect for these figures, but at the same time, they're still human. Um, 
And so it's cool to get to talk to people who knew them because it's easy to think of like their victories as having been set in stone or something. But when they were involved in their struggles, it wasn't for sure. Um, especially with with the actual Cuban revolution and the fighting, like you don't know if you're going to win. You're probably going to lose, actually. A lot of those struggles lost and they've lost in a very devastating way. Uh, so it's it's really it's it's cool to you know, I asked her just about like her what she remembers about her dad. Um, and I'm really excited for people to see the responses that she gave. She was a very a very smart woman committed to the revolution. And she I mean, Obviously, like I don't speak Spanish. I took four years of it in high school, but it was kind of useless. I understand a few words here and there. <laughs> so I had to have like somebody kind of translate what she said to me. Um, but I can't wait to actually see the full context of it because everyone in the room was in tears. <laughs> like not just her, but and because she was crying, I started crying, even though like I didn't even I knew I kind of had an idea of what she was saying, but I didn't know entirely. So I'm really excited to see that interview because. Um, myself, I'm really excited to see the end result of that interview. I'm really excited to be able to share it with people. That was definitely a highlight of my life. I actually, also, I didn't tweet about it because there was just so, I was like overwhelmed. I did so many interviews. So get ready for like an avalanche of Cuba content. Um, but I also got to sit down with Che Guevara's personal photographer, who's like in his eighties. Um, and he was really cool. And like, he kind of just like, you know, gave, he, the reason he joined the revolution was amazing. He actually, or the reason he became Chase photographer was amazing. He actually like had showed up with his friends to be a part of like the, the guerrilla movement, the fight. And they didn't have guns. Like you, the only way to get guns is to like steal them from police officers at the time, basically, because the revolution didn't have money. So Chase sent, tried to send them home, but this guy did have a camera. So he stayed and just started taking pictures of Che and became his personal photographer. And that's why he became his personal photographer. And he took some of the most like, uh, important. And, you know, basically the pictures that you would recognize of Che were taken by him. So it was really cool to get to talk to him and about his experiences with this revolutionary. Cause again, at the end of the day, these people are humans, you know, they, maybe they're a bit superhuman because of what they accomplished, but it's interesting to see like what their personal lives were like and hear about what their personal lives were like and their personalities. So that was a cool experience, but I also interviewed a member of the Henry Reeve brigades. The Henry Reeve brigades is a part of the international medical missions, but they're like special. They're kind of like the special operations of the medical missions who are dispatched by the Cuban government to disaster areas. For example, they served they uh, in Haiti after the big earthquake that like killed a hundred thousand people a few years back. Um, they served in Pakistan after like a tsunami, I think it was. Um, and they actually, the reason they were formed is because after hurricane Katrina in in uh, new Orleans, uh, Fidel Castro offered to send this newly created Henry Reeve brigade to go serve in new Orleans and provide free medical care. And the Bush administration rejected that offer. And they were like, okay, fine. You don't want it. Cool. But this is a great idea. Let's do this in other countries. So I got to talk to a guy who actually has served around the world, including in Italy. This is the brigade they sent to Italy uh, when COVID started and Italy was sort of like the ground zero or the, I don't know if that's the right word. Cause I guess Wuhan was the ground zero, but Italy was the next ground zero of like the worst uh, peak in the in the world. And so he had served there. And it was really great to talk to him because I just straight up asked him, I was like, how do you respond to these American claims that you're a slave? <laughs> so that was cool. And I can't wait for people to see his responses. 
We also spoke to journalists. Believe it or not, there are journalists in Cuba <laughs> um, who do journalism just like we do in other countries. Um, and so it was really cool to get to talk to younger. They were younger, especially I got to talk to the the ed head editor of like the largest student newspaper in the country. Um, got to talk to activists. And, you know, I got to talk to such a wide array and also people on the street. I got to talk to people on the street. So just like regular people, not for a sit down interview, completely unfiltered. So it was a really cool experience um, for, you know, we were there for like a week and a half and we made the most of it. And I feel like I got a really good, you know, opportunity. And I feel really confident that I got to see a big white, like a widespread array of Cuban society, um, including those who are, you know, maybe opposed to the revolution, but still are very, which is a very small slice, by the way, there are people who are opposed to the government. I wouldn't say there's everyone's critical of the government, but there are people, of course, who are opposed to it and they're not like in jail or dead. They openly say they're opposed to it and nothing happens to them. Um, and a lot of that has to do with the last thing I'll say is because I know we've been talking about Cuba for a long time is, you know, I think among younger people, there's a small slice of them who are on Instagram, who are on Facebook, who are on Twitter, and there is a huge apparatus funded and backed by the U.S., based mostly in Miami, devoted to convincing those young people that there isn't a blockade. The blockade is a lie. Um, and that's actually a talking point. Like people like that. There are some people, not everyone, but there's a small slice of people who believe the blockade isn't real because of this propaganda. And, you know, even think about us who like are like anti-imperialists in the U.S. and think about how much of an impact social media has on like, and we always kind of have to be, um, what's the word I'm thinking of? Like, we kind of have to always be on alert because social media, the way it works, especially like Instagram, is it shows you people's lives in a really fake way. And it makes you jealous of them because their lives are perfect. They're like on perpetual vacation somehow. Like everybody on Instagram is on perpetual vacation and always looks perfect. <laughs> and that's like capitalism. That's, that's how capitalism becomes attractive to people, despite the horrific reality of it. So imagine what a challenge that is for the Cuban revolution to deal with when there's young people who are dealing with shortages in their own country caused by the U.S. blockade. And there's an avalanche of misinformation funded by the U.S. telling them not only is there no blockade, but look at what you're missing out on in these capitalist countries where celebrities have so much and average people have so much. And they're just always at the beach um, and they have like an overabundance of goods. And so, you know, I think that that's going to be a huge challenge for the Cubans moving forward is figuring out how to deal with or how to counter that sort of like overwhelming amount of misinformation on the platforms that most young people are getting their news from. Yeah. I mean, this is a problem that exists around the world. And I, I, I gotta say, I mean, not even in countries with socialist governments, I mean, uh, because it's not only a difference between socialism and capitalism, but this life of rich people in the Imperial core, and working people in the global south and you know if you have all these rich people in miami showing on instagram all the parties they go to and the beaches yep. and the drinks and the clubs and stuff i mean that's not accessible even to a lot of people living in miami <laughs> who are like cleaning right. houses and you know working day to day paycheck to paycheck so not imagine what it would be like if you're a working class person in the global south i mean the the propaganda potential of these weapons. I mean, social media, 
outlets, these big Silicon Valley companies are weapons and they all are contractors with the US government, including right. Facebook, including Twitter, including, I mean, Instagram is owned by Facebook. So, I mean, I, I do want to talk about Ethiopian Eritrea. So the last thing I'll say before we transition here is I just wanted to point out that the Biden administration, you referenced this, has been even more aggressive on Cuba than Trump. And that's not just my opinion. This is an article that was published in the New York Times. It's called Biden ramps up pressure on Cuba, abandoning Obama's approach. And although I should mention we shouldn't whitewash Obama because Obama never actually lifted the blockade. He just lifted some sanctions. But when he normalized, he never lifted the blockade. But anyway, the right. point is that this New York Times article boasts, they say this boastingly, that, quote, Biden is taking an even harder line on Cuba than Donald Trump. Crazy. So the last thing I'll, I just want to end this segment here is just say that, I mean, this is bipartisan barbarism. And it, it's easy to point at Trump and, and criticize Trump for the horrible policies that he took toward Cuba, the hundreds of sanctions he imposed. But not only has Biden left on those hundreds of illegal sanctions, he's actually expanded them further. So everything that we just talked about in the past hour, I mean, not only are Republicans dedicated to trying to destroy that, but, <laughs> but Democrats are too. No, it's completely insane. And um, it's it's also like, I think this also speaks to the fact that, you know, everyone says, oh, Biden's just listening to the Miami lobby. And I think that that's definitely true that Biden is listening to the Miami lobby. But we also have to understand that Cuba is in the Western Hemisphere and there is a bipartisan, like almost demand that Cuba fail. Because if you have a prosperous, successful model of socialism, that is that close to the US, that is that close to all these other Latin American countries that we're trying to make sure don't ever go socialist as, as like the American ruling classes, you, you have to strangle it. Like you have to strangle it so that, and that's why Cuba is like, that's Cuba isn't just demonized in Cuba. It's de demonized to the domestic American audience so that none of us look too closely at the good attributes of Cuba. Cause we're just too focused on the bad attributes that the US is mostly lying about. So there's like there's a reason that Cuba in particular is under such relentless attack. And it's one of those one of the main reasons is you cannot like the we know the U.S. is terrified of any socialist or communist model anywhere of the world succeeding. And 90 miles away from what's considered U.S. territory is absolutely unacceptable. Absolutely. It's known as the threat of a good example. The, the U.S. can never example. tolerate the threat of a good example. <laughs> exactly. Well, with that said, let's move to Ethiopian Eritrea. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a pause here. And please join me in part two of my interview with Rania Kalik. And we're going to talk about her trips reporting in Ethiopia and Eritrea, two very important countries in the geostrategic horn of Africa that have been targeted in a war by the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front, the TPLF. And it does look a lot like the TPLF has been getting support from the US and Western governments. So we're gonna hear about the reporting on the ground that Rania did in both Ethiopia and Eritrea. Check that out in part two. And if you'd like to support the original investigative journalism that we do here, the interviews like this, please consider going to patreon.com slash multipolarista. And you can also go to our website, multipolarista.com slash support. And there you can support our show. You can also find 
the other reports that we do focused on imperialism and the struggles of people around the world, like in Cuba and the Horn of Africa and elsewhere, to free themselves from foreign domination, from imperialism. So with that said, this is Multipolarista. I'm Benjamin Norton, and I'll see you next time.